ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I am your host, Catherine, STRA Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com. And we are speeding our way through Jekyll and Hyde. Obviously, after this is going to be Christmas Carol, but we have this episode and one more on Mr. Henry Jekyll. So exciting. Also speeding my way through my book, redrafting. Dropping in August is gonna be the first straight talk English book, the full context of Jekyll and Hyde. I am so excited to share this with you. This has been a dream of mine for a little while. Woohoo! Let's get stuck in to Mr. Dr. Henry Jekyll. Oh, Harry Jekyll. What a friend you have made with Satan's signature on his face. First up, let's talk about drug addiction. Jekyll is an addict. <laughs> there isn't really another way of putting it, but then again, so is pretty much everyone else in the 19th century. Think about this bit from um, Dr. Lanyon's letter. Have you got it? He cried. Have you got it? And so lively was his impatience that he even laid his hand upon my arm and sought to shake me. Yeah, he's an addict. What else, what else can you say? In fact, when you know he's an addict, if you reread the book, and I don't know about this personally, but I matched it with an account online. He follows all the stages of a smack addict or a heroin addict. The first time we see him, he held out a cold hand and bade him welcome in a changed voice. He's having a downswing even when we first meet him. So at this point, for the reader, it's our first impression. But we know, actually, his addiction's been going on for a little while. When he first takes the powder, Jekyll says, The most racking pain succeeded, a grinding in the bones, deadly nausea, and horror of the spirit, which cannot be exceeded at the hour of birth or death. Then these agonies began to swiftly subside, and I came to myself as out of a great sickness. Apparently, this is what happens when a heroin user injects. Again, I don't know this, but I checked this online and I'm taking people's words for it. When he approaches Lanyon with his sad little letter and says, I'm sending Hyde round, a blogger called Jesse Bartell says his appeal to Lanyon is characteristic of the victim of addiction who in turn victimizes others by manipulating their loyalty affection or a sense of obligation and duty to personal advantage so once you know this go back and reread Jekyll and Hyde and tell me if that doesn't fit but we aren't aware of it until we know he's an addict so basically everyone's an addict in uh, Victorian England you could just, it's, um, have you ever seen online those um, adverts, you know, clickbaity things, 10 adverts wouldn't be allowed today, and it's like heroin and cough drops for kids and stuff like that. Or the, I haven't actually checked this, the, you know, Coca-Cola used to be flavoured with cocaine thing. It used to be flavoured with the coca leaf, which can be turned into cocaine, but I don't really know what cocaine tastes like in my head it's like sherbet but i think that's the only reason it's like the only white powder i've ever seen and um, coca-cola is supposed to taste like the coca leaf but you could just buy this something called godfrey's cordial 
for kids is opium, water and sugar. Laudanum as well is prescribed for many, many, many different illnesses frequently aimed at women it's like a mother's helper kind of thing and elizabeth barrett browning she of i think of the sonnet 29 fame from season one was spent a whole life on opium to deal with her chronic back pain the point being i'm just going to get back on track for a second laudanum is everywhere this is normal it is totally normal to take a lot of what would be considered in the opiates family like this is perfectly normal it's cocaine is supposed to be therapeutic it is supposed to uh help people with uh, nervous system conditions according to a medical textbook i found but even though people don't seem to have put two and two together so it's like we're taking laudanum and loads and loads of opium and also there's a load of drug addicts on the streets of london alcoholics drug addict it's no one's put two and two together on this so eh, fair enough there's a couple of these tell-all dramatic this is my life on opium type memoirs one of which goes in the first stages of addiction he has occasional periods of enjoyment in the latter he has none he is so benumbed by opium as to be incapable of enjoyment temporary manumission from positive pain or distress only brings into stronger relief his miserable situation he sees and feels he is not happy cannot be at his best and yet his sensibilities are so impervious to all deep feeling it is impossible for him to give way to the luxury of weeping the solace of tears his heart is as dry and dead as summer dust and it's kind of back to this virtue and vice question that keeps coming up according to victorian codes of behavior it's totally fine to take loads of all loads of opium and laudanum but in private you don't show it in public by letting Hyde come to life and run around the streets he's showing his addiction in public and that is what his crime is that is what he does wrong lewis also did not really have a problem with recreational drug usage initially he thought his imagination was a kind of drug like dizzy rascal you know i'm high on life bless him he indulges heavily in the intoxicating pleasures of imagination for the very reason that he reaps a greater pleasure than others must resign himself to a keener pain a more intolerable and utter prostration by such means i have forgotten hunger i have sometimes eased pain and i have invariably changed into the most pleasant hours of the day those very vacant and idle seasons which otherwise have hung most heavily round his head once again i would absolutely love to have a voice actor because i cannot do an edinburgh accent it sounds like uh, mike myers doing a fat b word in the austin powers films he did take a lot of hash when he was a teenager he got horrific nightmares in his diaries autobiographical notes letters he said he consulted a certain doctor and was given a simple draft which helped him sleep all right I'm fairly sure that if I went into Boots and I said I can't sleep, they'd either offer me, like, a herbal remedy or, like, have you tried some chamomile tea before they cracked out 
you know, the over-the-counter sleep remedies. And as someone who does have some deep insomnia sometimes, I've, I've tried everything. My current solution is have a really, really, really hot shower just before bed. It does work. Life tips along with literature. So we don't know what Lewis was prescribed. It's probably drugs. It's the Victorian times. But I like to think someone was like, oh, you look a bit skinny. Have a nice cup of tea. A little bit later, he had this really weird crush on an older woman called Fanny Sitwell. I have no problem with age gap relationships. That is absolutely fine. But in his letters, he kept calling her mummy. And it gives me the shivers. To be honest, gives me the shivers. And he would write his mummy some letters including, guess what, mummy? I've taken a load of opium. My day is so exciting. (laughs) Which, again, the more I read about Lewis, the more I'm like, oh, my days. He said, I had a a day of extraordinary happiness, and when I went to bed, there was also something almost terrifying in the pleasures which besieged me in the darkness. Wonderful tremors filled me. My head swam in the most delirious but enjoyable manner, and the bed softly oscillated with me, like a boat with a very gentle ripple. All right, all right, Lewis. All right, I'm glad you're happy. But... Even though it's one of these like urban legend things and I've honestly, I've read biographies and I don't know whether the biographers I've read are just very coy people or it's not true or they've skipped it out. One of the things I read online is that Lewis took a load of cocaine and then wrote Jekyll and Hyde in a cocaine binge and I haven't found any evidence for or against that. Just this like one sentence which says he took cocaine. So believe it or don't. But 2005, there was some scientific research that said he was given a prescription for his suspected TB called ergotine. Ergotine is made from a fungus and the mould which affects Ryan Wheat caused mass poisonings in the Middle Ages. Victims suffered vivid hallucinations and convulsions which were mistakenly believed to be the symptoms of demonic possession and it's believed that the Salem witch trials in 1692 were triggered by this. So people were seeing demons flying around because they'd eaten the dodgy wheat. The irony is even if he wasn't taking drugs uh illegal and recreational drugs he was definitely taking dodgy hallucinogenic tb cures so like drugs play into jekyll and hyde so much i think sometimes that the choices for gcse text are fabulous books but they're not the ones that i would pick when i become education secretary as inevitably i will i think i'm make some changes i might put in the island of dr moreau as a new victorian one but i do like the idea of jekyll as being a way into talking about things like addiction jekyll is as ever a massive hypocrite and it's also very religious or at least makes a lot of references to faith there are two bible stories which jekyll uses quite offhand which are very very interesting one of them is the captives of philippi or philippi i don't know p-h-i-l-i-p-p-i basically um two disciples cast a demon out 
of a woman. The people in the town are very angry about that because turns out the demon was actually giving them like really good fortune telling. And the disciples who are, at least one of them is Paul. My days, I am really, really bad at this. But Paul and Silas, just found it in my notes, Paul and Silas are imprisoned. God sends an earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, which makes the doors open and everyone is let loose. The person that imprisoned them says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then they are baptised. Something happens that shakes the walls of Jekyll that makes something inside come out. Except Lewis, who is an atheist has flipped it round. It's not divine intervention which causes the stability of Jekyll's personality to be shaken, it's science. And it's his own quote-unquote sinning that does that. Hyde is the prison. Hyde is the prisoner. But if in this Bible story, the prisoners are the good guys, that means Hyde's the good guy. That means we should be able to do what we want. We should follow our instincts. That sounds like a very Lewis thing to think. Aha. Uh-huh. There's another obscure biblical reference. And I've been Googling. You can tell I've put in research this book, can't you? He says, the inexplicable incident, the reversal of my previous experience, seemed like the Babylonian finger on the wall to be spelling out the letters of my judgment. I began to reflect more seriously than ever before on the issues and possibilities of my double existence. It is from the book of Daniel, chapter 5. King Belshazzar has a banquet. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. And they try and work out what is written because it's in some weird language. Daniel, from the land of Judah, gets called in. He reads it and it says, Your days are numbered. You have been found wanting. Your kingdom is going to be divided. And of course, because Belshazzar has been a bad guy, he has concubines, he has been talking to other gods, he has been drinking all of the wine. This comes true and he dies. This is the foreshadowing hidden in. Jekyll believes he's been given, at least metaphorically, a divine message saying you've been found wanting and your days are numbered. So we're taking this literally, God has sent him this message, but he does not turn to God for guidance, he turns to science. Once again, science has replaced God at least for Lewis and at least for Jekyll who take by taking power into his own hands by making those judgments making that potion which otherwise would have been a time to go to a priest he is doing it himself similarly thinking of people doing it themselves is Jekyll Deacon Brody so Deacon Brody is a famous criminal from Edinburgh history he was middle-aged when he was elected to the city council a respected man who hilariously really really loved musical theater he just really really enjoyed it and it's considered to be a big factor in why he became a criminal so he was deacon that meant he was like a trade union leader one of the things that his union the union of cabinet makers did was they also did locks 
So when someone had a new door fitted, he kept a copy of the key. By day, he is respected councilman, and by night, well, the night of Christmas Eve, 1781, he nicked gold worth to 26 grand in today's money. He then nicked 38 grand's worth of silk. He nicked the silver mace kept at Edinburgh University. Investigators are baffled. How could they have got into these locked doors without breaking a window? Oh no! He decides he is going to rob the tax office, which holds the tax income from the whole of Scotland. He gets interrupted halfway through and he legs it. He's recruited a gang at this point, and one of the gang is so annoyed with the fact that he ran away that he informs on him. He informs the authority and presents them with his collection of counterfeit keys. And this is the bit that I love. He doesn't name it's Brody. He says it was just an important man. The rest of the gang are arrested. Brody's like, oh no, he went into the prison and said, I only want to express my pleasure that the criminals who for so long had terrorised this town, could I, just out of curiosity, be permitted to see them, to have a word with them? Uh, it's, I just love that. I just love that so much. The jailhouse person said, nope, Brody took the next coach out of town. I'm done. A couple of days later, a ship is leaving London for Scotland. A tobacco shop owner and his wife are heading back. The mysterious Mr. Dixon produces documents that make the ship change course to Belgium. Mr. Dixon hands the tobacco shop owner a set of letters for him to post. The tobacco shop owner and his wife are nosy. I mean, to be honest, I would I would struggle to be honest with that one. I'm I'm just a really nosy person. Mr. Dixon is, of course, Brody. The letter he felt it so important to send was about how to look after his prize cockfighting chicken. And he'd written to his brother-in-law, like, make sure you give him the good food. Look after that beautiful chicken. The tobacco shop owner passes it on to the authorities and he is swiftly extradited back to Scotland, Brody was sentenced to death by hanging. And this is where the story gets a bit cool. He's hanged, okay. His body's put on a cart. His friends grab the cart, take him to a doctor they've bribed to try and revive him. Sadly, it fails and he is buried in an unmarked grave. Until in the 21st century, the grave is found exhumed and the coffin is full of stones. A chap called Owen Dudley Edwards of Edinburgh University say he probably made it to America. Brodie was very well connected. The judges themselves were embarrassed they'd known Brodie and Kent his father. It's more than possible he survived. The only evidence we have that he died is a statement from the people around him, but they were his friends. Uh-huh. So why is this relevant to Jekyll, aside from it being a story about someone who's respectable by day and a badden by night? Well, Lewis was obsessed with Deacon Brodie. It was his favourite, like, childhood story. So he had this big old cupboard in his childhood bedroom where he kept his toys. 
and his nanny called Cummy. I will never grow tired of saying Cummy. C U M M I E. Told him it was Deacon Brody's cabinet and it's where he kept all of his bad stuff. And little Lewis is like, oh no, a ghost story. But then as an adult, he checked it up and it actually was made by Deacon Brody. <laughs> that one might actually have been true. His original dream that turned into Jekyll and Hyde is of a man pressed into a cabinet. Now, does he mean like a walk in wardrobe? I don't know, but he's probably thinking of that same cabinet. While he's at uni, he gets back onto thinking about Deacon Brody. At the time, he had much of his future work simmering in his brain. One evening, he broke out into a species of Jekyll and Hyde plot. Deacon Brody, the hypocritical villain who appeared as a pillar of the church and an able craftsman before his fellow townsmen, was really a gambler and a burglar. Just stopping for a sec. He had a massive scar on his face from when someone tried to fight him over a gambling debt, looking really like a Bond villain. It was really a gambler and a burglar, suggested to Lewis the two-sidedness of human character commingling out of good and evil. Evil is spelled E-V-E-L because there's no spelling rules. The smug front to the world, the villain behind the mask. So his whole genesis of this duality, good man, bad man thing comes from his obsession with Deacon Brody. Lewis wrote a book about this is what Scotland is like. It's actually quite cool. And he includes the story of Deacon Brody because he is such a fanboy. A great man in his day was the Deacon, well seen in good society, crafty with his hands as a cabinet maker and one who could sing a song with taste. In the mind's eye, he may be seen a man harassed beneath a mountain of duplicity, slinking from a magistrate's supper room to a thieves' den, and pickering among the closes by the flicker of a dark lamp. So this is where he's come from, basically. This is where it's all coming from, his weird fanboy thing with Deacon Brody. The other thing about Jekyll, the thing that stops him being Hyde is he gets this fear that he is going to go to the gallows. He is going to be hanged. And even though murder is a hanging offence, he probably wouldn't have. <laughs> then let me tell you why. I, I can tell that you're dying to know why Jekyll would not have gone to the gallows. And the answer is because he's rich. There you go. Short answer. In 1861, the death penalty had been abolished for pretty much everything except murder, treason, piracy, and arson in the royal dockyards. So as long as you don't set fire to a ship, you're probably okay. Public execution finished in 1868. People were executed. It was incredibly shameful. But a couple of pennies here and there, and someone as respected as a doctor would not have gone to one of those bad prisons. Probably would have been out in a couple of years. I'm going to tell you about a little case study right now. In 1867, a little girl was lured away from her friends by a mysterious, ma- mysterious man and brutally murdered. She is Fanny Adams and this is really gross but really sad. Um, She was so dismembered and disgusted and disgusting the way her corpse was treated that it kind of just looked awful and inhuman. Sailors were given these rotten rations that were just like dog food in a can and people started joking. Oh it's like the body of Fanny Adams. This is where, like, oh, sweet Fanny Adams, sweet F.A. That's where it comes from. It means nothing, nothing good. And this poor little girl, her name now is used to mean nothing good at all. Oh, that's horrible. But it didn't take 
the police longed to find the suspect for Fanny Adams's murder. In fact, it was it was pretty easy. There was only one person in the village matching the description. There was a ton of witnesses. The investigation was pretty open and shut. He'd written in his diary he'd killed her and he had a knife collection. But, surprise witness, a psychologist described something called homicidal mania in which an apparently sane person is overcome by a burst of madness and kills a blameless victim, often someone close to him. Crucially, in such episodes, there is not premeditation and no attempt is made to hide the crime by concealing the body. Since a man under homicidal mania generally is indifferent to punishment. Sounds a little bit like Hyde, doesn't it? So, alternative outcome... And I point out the murderer of Fanny Adams, Frederick Baker, if it wasn't for the diary entry that was like, I did it, people were convinced by this. Jekyll could have pleaded temporary insanity. Okay, we know that Victorian mental asylums are the stuff of just fear. So many, so many horrible horror movies have been made. American Horror Story Asylum. Oh, that gave me some fears. But don't forget Jekyll is rich. He could get himself declared insane and then go somewhere really cushy. My version of what would have happened is he bribes himself to a nice asylum, retires, sobers up, does rehab, and then just potters around forever. A very nice Victorian-era asylum for quote-unquote nerves is up in Hertfordshire, which is where my sister lives, in the converted Victorian asylum. So my outcome is, he moves into my sister's apartment, he ends up there, tottering around. Even though it's shameful, even though it's horrifying, his career's over anyway. He would not have gone to the gallows. People are inclined to believe that it's foreigners or it's the working class. Someone with as good a track record as Jekyll is going to get away with it. But, of course, the last act of Dr. Henry Jekyll is to kill himself. Content warning again, I am going to be discussing suicide and various methods of completing suicide in no way am i condoning or suggesting anything it is obviously a horrible and serious subject and one which has affected me but me being light-hearted please take it in the spirit it's intended so i want to point out jekyll dies he kills himself to kill hyde up until 1961 suicide was illegal in the uk and should someone actually survive they then go to prison which i feel like that's really pointless because either you succeed and complete suicide or you get punished for trying oh the circle no but it does make jekyll's final act a crime suicide is a big no-no in 19th century anglicanism Everyone is responsible for his life before God who has given it to him. It is God who remains the sovereign master of life. We are obliged to accept life gratefully and preserve it for his honour and the salvation of our souls. We are stewards, not owners, of the life God has entrusted to us. It is not ours to dispose of. And that comes from a 19th century um, current affairs Catholic church book. As if someone does complete suicide, you could not be buried in a churchyard. Up until 1823, you would have to be buried at a crossroads to confuse the ghost. And, oh god, even worse, you have to put a stake through the corpse's heart to present the ghost 
rising, even though the dearly departed is beyond recrimination the effect on the survivors is a big deal suicide is considered to bring the surviving family into disrepute victorian attitudes to suicide demonstrate typical ambivalence with the deed acceptably romantic in theory but unforgivable in real life it is going to wreck Utterson's life, it's going to wreck Poole's life. If Lanyon was not so scared he had a heart attack, it would affect their lives because they are friends of someone who is such a bad egg, they decided to complete suicide. But I've mentioned Lewis is a fanboy of Deacon Brody. He's a massive fanboy of Percy Shelley, the romantic poet, Mr. Ozymandias, husband of Mrs. Frankenstein. He died in a boating accident. It is believed he drowned himself in an Italian lake. And it is the, you know, the stereotypical romantic poet dying for his art. And this was kind of a thing that Stevenson wanted for himself. He was really, really upset when he was found he didn't have TB because he could not be the great romantic hero of his dreams. New research suggests actually that Shelley's death was an accident. It was less, I give my poetry to the lake, and more, I'm going to go for a boat ride and I don't know how to work a boat. So we know that now. We know that now. But we've got to think, not only his obsession, with Shelley making suicide seem like something glamorous but also the idea of a good death. This is a weird Victorian thing. Victorians are creepily obsessed with death. It is all about the mark you make, the memorial that you leave. It's where people become obsessed with famous last words. The quote-unquote good death that you want is you're still young and beautiful and you lie there in your bed and you say something profound as your last words and everyone cries and then you get a massive statue of yourself as an angel and that is the death that people aspire to don't forget victorians are kind of much more in touch with life and death than we are due to like really high child mortality rates i mean i'm 32 i have not had that many people close to me pass away but if i was this age at a victorian as a victorian person i would have lost brothers sisters potentially at least one husband at this point death is quick what Jekyll does is he denies himself the good death. He gets the bad death. No one is going to raise a statue of him. No one is going to listen to his prophetic last words even though ironically we are through the last statement of the case no one is going to gently weep and also he's old and has a really freakishly smooth face like an egg as we discovered last time so that is the last thing he does is deny his respectability behave in an unrespectable manner by not giving himself and the world the good death quote unquote the good death which he should present as a respectable man as a respectable doctor henry jekyll obviously a very very sad guy suffering from addiction dealing with a very very deep knowledge of bible stories i'm i'm impressed he's got enough memory capacity on top of a medical degree dealing with the fact he's probably in the closet dealing with the fact that the person who wrote him seems to have the impression of suicide is romantic and beautiful dealing with the fact he believes he will suffer a humiliating public 
public hanging. It's not specifically dated when the book's supposed to be set, but it's contemporary enough to think it's 1885. And I'm fortunate enough to have a writer who is inspired by the dramatically show tune singing Deacon Brody, he of Counterfeit Keys bit of a downer this one it is a sad book sometimes i do feel a bit sorry for poor old jekyll like i do think this is the same as macbeth if macbeth had just adopted fleance he gets a son banquo's line take the throne everyone's happy if just one person had opened up in this book everything would have been avoided if Jekyll had said I'm dealing with some stuff right now if Utterson had said are you all right I saw you at a window and then you had a bit of a funny turn just one person spoke to each other face to face everything would have been fine last episode's moral was be true to yourself this episode's moral is if you are having difficulties with addiction obsession with Percy Bysshe Shelley trying to cram so much bible knowledge fear of a public execution or an obsession with show tunes that leads you to house robbery or anything else reach out and share it man woman any gender identity any age just reach out do not be henry jekyll just don't be jekyll anyway he's got a weirdly smooth face maybe he's had that like microdermabrasion stuff i could go some of that on that note in which i wish i had microdermabrasion money i will bid you adieu i haven't actually decided whether the next episode's going to be a one part or a two-parter i'm going to record it and then make a cut to try and not make it too long i will see you very very soon treasure your loved ones do not let them listen to show tunes and rob houses and i will speak to you very very soon